each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Good morning. I was um, just having a chat with Nath before the service about this passage. Um, We had the privilege of spending a bit of time with Christine Dillon, uh, one of the missionaries that we support over in in Taiwan, and she does a lot of Bible storytelling. And uh, when we spent time with her, she taught us, I guess, this method of um, memorising stories from the Bible so we can share it with people that we run into. And uh, this story was one of the stories that uh, Nath and Jazz uh, memorised amongst a whole bunch of others and uh, on the last trip to Nepal they spent a lot of time bumping into different people uh, on their way and uh, they shared this story as well as a whole bunch of others with them and I was chatting to Nathan about um, his experience of sharing this story and people's reactions to it and um, he was telling me that there was this one woman uh, that he met on the bus, she was an older German lady, quite against Christianity, had some background in um, the church but had since left it and she was actually in Nepal to explore a bit more about Buddhism. Um, but as, as he could tell that she was quite against the whole sort of Christian message and church and whatever experience she's had that's burnt her in the past. But as he was sharing this story and others, uh, it occurred to this woman that she actually really appreciated Jesus' grace in responding to the needs around him. And she, meant, she ended up sort of walking away thinking, a bit torn, because she's there to ex- discover um, Buddhism, uh, which Nath was telling me about. But... Um, she started thinking, you know, how good it would be to have someone like Jesus on your side so you wouldn't have to worry about your family and worry about some of these things that do get us worked out from time to time. Uh, the other person that he shared this story with was uh, this Sherpa, the Nepalese Sherpa who was helping them on their trek. And um, Nath was telling me, he, he shared a whole bunch of stories with this man and this man accepted all of them. said, yep, 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 the Noah story, he could see how God would be working in that. All these stories across salvation history. When it came to this story about Jesus turning water to wine... This story was where the shepherd drew the line. And he said, no, nah, didn't happen, couldn't happen. For some reason, uh, this story just wasn't acceptable to this Sherpa. Maybe it was because, um, I don't know what the Nepalese culture is like, but maybe their um, association with alcohol was particularly negative and so Jesus wouldn't be, be making alcohol, would he? And it's just a strange little story that we have with us this morning. But uh, as we start looking at it together uh, this morning, Uh, How about you join me in prayer that God would open our eyes to see and that we wouldn't say no to what God has revealed. Let's pray. Father, help us to be attentive to your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the records about him. And we ask that even this morning as we look at it, maybe fresh for the first time or uh, we're rereading it for the hundredth time. Help us to hear what your spirit might be saying uh, in, in your word to us. Help us to hear, Father, that we might believe. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this chapter, chapter 2, you've got to put yourself 
into the shoes of someone like Jesus' mother or his disciples at this point in the story. Where, well, there's, there's been plenty, plenty of excitement around. Um, John the Baptist, chapter 1, has gone about telling people, telling anybody who's bothered to listen, that Jesus is the man to watch. You know, that Jesus is this Lamb of God who's come to save the world from their sins. John's said, this is God's chosen. This is the man with authority to baptise people in the Holy Spirit, to, you know, drench people in the Spirit of God who can transform their lives. Watch this man. And so even some of John's own disciples have gone over to start following Jesus, but John doesn't resent that. Good on him, because he is the main game. The first few to start following Jesus think that they've found the chosen one. They've found the Messiah. They call him Rabbi. They call him the Christ. They call him Teacher. They call him the King of Israel. They call him the Son of God. All these things that you read about, people are saying about Jesus, you see in chapter 1. But at this point, Jesus hasn't actually done anything yet. He's about to. There's plenty of action that's to come. But so far, it's all just words. And they suspect, they've been told that he's something special. But the proof of the pudding is in its eating, isn't it? Is he going to start with a whimper or a bang? Next week, you're going to see the bang, where Jesus literally tears the place apart. But the start of chapter 2, this passage that we're looking at this morning, this is almost like the pre-show interview, where he's not really giving that much away. This isn't the main event, but you do get to see something of the character of this man. You get to see enough of him and the kind of thing he's on about to want to stick around to see when the real fireworks happen. Uh, the scene, as we've had read for us, uh, is the small country town of Cana where someone's getting married. And I suspect, like in a lot of small towns where, I guess everyone knows each other, if someone's getting married, everyone's invited. This is Galilee, so this is Jesus' territory uh, where he grew up. Jesus is invited, Jesus' mother is invited. It seems even these friends of Jesus who've just started following Jesus, even they're invited. It sounds like a very hospitable part of the world, if you ask me. Now, I don't know exactly how many people would have been there at this wedding, but it may help your imagining this scene to know that uh, later on there's mentioned something like 600 litres of booze that Jesus makes. 600 litres. You have to work backwards from that to work out how many people 600 litres of wine would cater for. It's, It's quite a lot. I'm thinking the whole town's there, which is why Jesus is invited too. And he's there as a guest, like everyone else, probably having a good time because why not? It's a wedding. Everyone loves a wedding. I think back to my wedding. It's uh, coming up to seven years soon, um, in about a week's time, Monday week. Uh, And it's true what they say. The day goes really fast. If you've been there, if you know the experience, it's a whirlwind. But it's a happy kind of blur. It's 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 a really good day. A lot of people make a lot of effort to make sure it's a very good day. And what I loved about the day was, well, two things. One is that she said, I do. And the second thing is that that was the one day I remember where I didn't have to worry about a single logistical thing on the day. Because everyone else in my world made sure that everything was sorted out. So that even if, if something came up that needed to be dealt with, I never heard about it because they didn't want me and Joyce to have to worry. 
I think it's so different for me because I'm used to being the one who's sort of making sure things are okay. So that was great. I think that's the kind of thing that's happening here in John 2. There's a hiccup at this wedding that Jesus is at. They run out of wine, which is kind of a big deal. You've invited everyone you know to this party. You cannot run out of food and drink. You just can't. Uh, but they do. And it's not exactly a, a social sin. Uh, you haven't technically hurt anybody, but it's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? And I can see on the faces of some of you all that, especially the aunties, you wouldn't be caught dead without something to serve to people. You wouldn't be caught dead without supper at your small group, let alone at a wedding, would you? But to their credit, there are people there handling the situation, worrying about it so the bride and groom don't have to. Well, you see the groom later in the story, he turns up and he doesn't even know what's happened. He doesn't even know there's a problem there. He seemed to have no idea they were running short because that was probably someone else's problem. One of those someone else's was Jesus' mother. She sees that they're running out of wine. There's no more wine. So you see in verse 3, if you read John chapter 2, verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus says back to her, woman, why do you involve me? And you might have a footnote there at verse 4 explaining how uh, it's not as rude as it sounds to us in English to call your mother woman. Um, in the Greek, apparently, that's just how you say it. You can phrase things like that and it's fine. Uh, the point is, he's not being rude. He's not being rude. He's asking a legitimate question here. Mum, why do you involve me? It's not my party. I'm not running this thing. It's not me getting married. My hour has not yet come. Oh, the wedding of the Christ, the Lamb of God, will come. And that'll be a great day. But this isn't it. This is someone else's wedding. Jesus is just a guest here, like everyone else. And from what it looks like, Mary's not saying, hey, they have no more wine, Jesus, as if it's like a big, scandalous bit of gossip. And it's not, she's not saying it as a matter of fact, just to describe the situation of Jesus as if he didn't know. It looks like she's saying, Jesus, they have no more wine, as if she's expecting him to do something about it. It's like if I go to a wedding and you know, the groom's lost his ring. He doesn't have it at the, at the time when he's going to give the ring. And my mum turns to me, who's sitting in the crowd, and says, Johnny, he's lost the wedding ring. I, mean, I didn't take it. He <laughs> kind of my one. It's, it's my. Well, it's, it's not my problem, is it? You go to a wedding. They run out of food. It's, you're not the caterer. You don't. It's not your problem. Let them sort it out. This isn't Jesus's problem. He's been identified as the savior of the world. Yes. Does he care about a bunch of people not having enough booze for their party? Well, you see what he does. Verse five. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby, the six stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding uh, 20 to 30 gallons. He said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He, he didn't realise where it had come from. 
than the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, apparently Jesus isn't too busy or important to deal with this situation. What I find impressive about Mary is that, well, you don't know how much she understands about what Jesus came to do at this point. But you get the sense that she's seen enough of Jesus, having raised him, having lived in the same house as him all these years, she knows that he can probably do something to help in this situation. Otherwise, why would you go to him? She's incredibly confident, actually, isn't she? When she sees the problem, she goes straight to Jesus. Doesn't go and talk with the master of the banquet who's there. She doesn't go and talk to the family members of the bride and groom. She asks Jesus to fix this problem. And even when he tells her that it's not really his problem, it's not his time, she's so confident that he can help that she tells the servants to go and do whatever it is that he tells them to do. And he's gracious enough to oblige. In fact, Jesus uses this situation to show his disciples something of his glory. It's more than just a party trick. Yes, he turns water into wine, but there's got to be more to it than that because by the end of this episode, verse 11, his disciples, we're told, have seen something of his glory and they believe in him in a way that they didn't believe in him before. And I doubt they're believing just in his alcohol-making abilities, as impressive as that might be. The details of this sign are worth looking at again. Jesus notices that there are six huge stone water jars nearby, the kind that's used for the Jews' ceremonial washing. And he chooses to use these jars, which is no accident, I think. Um, There are different kinds of ceremonial washing in Judaism. There's the washing of hands uh, at all different occasions, as well as the full body immersion baptism type thing. both of them symbolising a ritual cleansing with water. Whether you have your hands uh, washed in the temple before you go to worship or whether you do it before a meal or you do it at the start of a day or you do it at your conversion to Judaism, basically any time you've become ritually unclean, there was a process where you'd be cleaned again and it involved some water, which you get out of these big special stone jars. And the ceremonial washings happened a lot, which is probably why the stone jars were so big. They needed to hold a lot of water so you didn't have to keep filling them up. They were always doing ceremonial washing if you're a Jew. And if you're a serious Jew, when you see those jars, you associate it straight away with this sort of ritual cleansing practice. And so Jesus takes this symbol of spiritual cleansing and he uses these jars to make wine out of the water that he gets put in there. And the punchline's in verse 10. The servants take the jars of wine to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet doesn't know where it's come from. As far as he's concerned, he's just happy they've managed to find some more wine, I'm guessing. Somehow this party's been saved. But as soon as he tastes it, this, this wine, the quality of the drop is so remarkable that he feels like he has to go and get the bridegroom to have a chat with him 
and say something in verse 10. He calls the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now, as if this guy had any idea what was happening. And as far as the master of the banquet's concerned, he's just making a professional judgment about the wine that he's tasted and the order you normally bring out the good stuff in. Like at a party, he's saying at the start, you bring out the best wine there because people will remember that. People are sober enough to appreciate it. And then after they've had a bit, maybe you can serve the cheaper stuff because they're happy enough to neglect their, their taste. As far as he's concerned, he's talking about wine. And he doesn't know, I think, that he's just said something profound about Jesus' ministry and the timing of it in God's plans. To the Jewish ceremonial law, in which you know the, that was good, it was fine. It might have been uh, a particularly... Um, significant part of, I guess, temple worship. And in the history of God's salvation for his people, ceremonial law and, and the washing is fine. But the best has been saved until now with the coming of Jesus. As good as the temple was, as good as the law was, as good as these regulations were, what Jesus brings, it comes out of the Jewish tradition for sure. He's here to cleanse and renew, but the quality of what Jesus is bringing is incomparable. It's like he's got the best champagne which makes everything else you've tasted before in your spiritual experience seem like cheap wine, like the clean skins you get or the $2 bottles of rumours you get for your risotto or whatever. And there's an abundance. There's 600 litres of the good stuff made available in Jesus. Spiritual drink that satisfies in a way that was greater than what Israel had ever known. I think that's the significance of what Jesus does here. I mean, yes, he saves the party. He does the impossible. But the sign means something. It points to something outside of itself, which is what signs do. At least that's how the disciples understand it. They, perhaps in retrospect, see something of Jesus' glory here. The incomparable richness of what Jesus is bringing compared to the religion that they knew. So, simple story, but if you've never tasted what Jesus is on about, and you're here this morning, I suspect God is trying to get through to you. And if you don't know how good Jesus is, if you don't get why people follow him, but you're here this morning, Jesus and God might be saying to you, Check it out. We're preaching through the story of Jesus' life uh, this year. We're encouraging everyone to, to read through the Gospel of John. Read John, please, will you? Uh, and taste and see how good Jesus is for yourself. Or if you've done it before, remind yourself again. Reread it and ask that God will show you something new. But I can't help but go back to think about Mary, Jesus' mother, in this story. In some ways, I think she's the conduit for this story. In that, I don't think it might, this story might not have happened at all if she didn't ask Jesus to get involved. And even though it's not technically his time, technically it's not the main thing Jesus came to do. He didn't come to turn water to wine. But because she asks, 
Jesus graciously helps her and even uses this situation to reveal his glory. So can I encourage you this week to just try praying. Try praying, whatever the situation is, whatever the crisis. And it may not feel like the most spiritual thing to pray for, whatever it is that uh, has come to your attention, but when you need help, when the situation arises where you feel like you need saving, it's not going to hurt you to try praying and for you to trust in the power and the wisdom and the grace of the one you're praying to. Because who knows, God may do something amazing in answer to your request to reveal his glory. Would you pray with me now? And we'll uh, see if we can remember that Sherpa and that German lady in our prayers as well as the other things that are going on. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your grace that in the grand scheme of things you remembered us and you came for us. Even though it wasn't your, wasn't your business in some senses, it was our problem, our sin, our failure and yet you took it on yourself to come to help. And we thank you even for this story where Jesus seems to go out of his way even though it wasn't his time to, to help at this wedding. And so we ask for those people around us who are so far from you, who aren't even looking, perhaps, let alone those who are close. We, we, we pray for, for example, that, that Sherpa that Nathan Jazz was talking to and that German lady who's searching for something and the others in our lives who we know who, who need you. We, we pray that you would do something special in their lives to show them who you are and who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And Father, we want to spend some time now, um, I guess, praying together, but thinking about the individual needs that are around us, for the different situations that we feel we do need you to act, we do need help. And even though it may not be grand salvation things, we, we want to commit those things to you now. And the burdens that are on our minds, the, the things that are on our hearts, we want to bring them to you now, Father. Lord, we ask because we know you. We know that you're gracious. We know that you're capable. We know that you're all wise. And so we pray that if it is your will, that you would help, that you would come and save and that in your saving you would reveal something of your glory. Help us to be people who continue to believe and who trust in you. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been reminded today about the grace of our Lord Jesus, his gracious character and the love and the grace and generosity that overflows. And as he demonstrates that grace um, to the couple that got married in the passage that we read, that he reveals part of his glory to those around him. And so the challenge for us is that we might remember who he is, a person of grace, and that would turn us to pray and to ask him. And perhaps as we do that, some of his glory will be revealed to us too.